everybody, and welcome to the Oscar Watch Podcast, the podcast where we look back at past Best Picture winners for your reconsideration. I am your host, Stephen Buja, and I am asking you to come and play with us forever and ever and ever and ever alongside the one, the only, the Miss Amy Thomason. Amy, how are you doing? It is October now. We finally get to talk about some horror movies. Very excited about this. What's going on? I, too, am very excited. It was like 60 degrees in South Carolina this morning, so I put my daughter in a jacket, which was really exciting for the first time this year. Nice and cool. Which is okay, because our air conditioning just broke, so... Hey, it's... uh, It's helping get us through. (laughs) It's a balmy 76 degrees here in the city. But, Amy, uh, so we're here to discuss... Stanley Kubrick, and when we talk about Stanley Kubrick, there's only one, only one man I want to discuss that with. There and that is, is only one. And it's like Highlander up in here, and that is special guest star Brian Hartz joining us once Yay! again. You will remember him from our episode, our first should have been a contender on 2001: A Space Odyssey. Brian, long time. Hey, How you doing? it's good to be back. It's great yes, to have I'm, you. I'm not as handsome as Christopher Lambert, but I am handy with a sword. Oh, I am not <laughs> surprised is. by that at all. Uh, what have you been up to in the meantime? Oh, well, a whole bunch of stuff with the Indie Lightsaber Academy, speaking of swords, but I can talk to you about that later. Um, I will ask you about and, uh, that at a different point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and uh, you know, just taking care of my, uh, my delightful four-year-old daughter, Beatrice, and uh, going on a new ketogenic diet with month so all right i'm sorry i was don't, eating don't a donut a i was definitely <laughs> eating a donut right in front of you the the screen and i'm sorry i'm sorry about that but i'm not really sorry because it was delicious. i might axe murder you if that happens <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well if you don't realize today in october we are discussing for your reconsideration because it should have been a contender 1980s the shining Written by Diane Johnson and Stanley Kubrick, directed by the late, great Stanley Kubrick, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, and Scatman Crothers. A film that has become, is one of those rare movies that seems to age like wine. It has become more well-respected and thought about in the nearly four decades since its release. Uh, it was famously derided by both uh, Roger Ebert and Stephen King, upon whom the uh, film was based upon, his novel The Shining, as well. And it just it's taken a hold of pop culture in a way that so few films do, and yet somehow Stanley Kubrick films always manage to do somehow. So, uh, it's The Shining. It's a, it's, a, it's a fabulous movie. What are your... What is your personal history with the film, Brian? I don't recall the first time I saw The Shining, as a matter of fact, but my most memorable experience uh, of it was um, I had the great good fortune to take a class at Indiana University with uh, James Naramore, who's one of the preeminent film scholars in the United States, wrote the book on Kubrick, or at least a book on Kubrick, uh, and uh, took a class of his uh, in the year 2000, senior in college, uh, all about Kubrick, just 
we did, and, and that was when Eyes Wide Shut had just come out, so we were able to cover his entire filmography. Um, by the way, if you haven't seen Fear and Desire, you can probably skip it, um, but that's <laughs> a subject for another day. Um, but I actually ended up writing a paper on the music used in 2001 and The Shining, and since the uh, official soundtrack for The Shining uh, went out of print almost immediately after it was released on LP in 1980. Um, I had to do a lot of digging in the IU Music Library to track down all the various uh, classical pieces that are uh, that are used in it. So really, I actually had a lot of fun with that. Okay, but it also well, made for a kind of scary experience because I had to watch several scenes over and over just to get the music. I didn't uh, sleep well that night. Yeah. And, you, and, you, and and this was before you could just Shazam everything and identify what it was. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can, uh, yeah, now all I have to do is, it's three seconds away on Google, I can call up any of that information. Oh. Not so much in 2001. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, if, if, only, if only Jack Nicholson had the internet when he was stuck up there in the <laughs> hotel, I think none of this would have happened. Or maybe it would have happened much worse and, and live streamed. Or something. I don't. I'm not sure. I can. I can just imagine him on a smartphone, like uh, you know, frantically searching for how to escape a meat locker. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, oh my god, that'd be hilarious. Ah, turns out, just ask a ghost; they'll do it for you. That's great, Amy. What is your experience with The Shining? I can't remember the first time I saw it, but I remember when I was growing up, and I've said this every time we've done a Jack Nicholson film, that my dad is like a diehard Jack Nicholson fan. But we've I remember a lot of Jack Nicholson movies, and we're going to do way more. Exactly, but he used to, do, if you mention the movie, he does this thing where like he, he slicks back his hair and goes, here's Johnny, because he thinks that's like the funniest, greatest moment ever. <laughs> Yeah. Brian has met my dad. He can imagine what I'm talking about. He yes. puts his hair back like that. And um, your dad, who's like the least menacing person in the world. Yeah, he makes <laughs> Atticus. I, I joke around that my dad makes Atticus Finch look like a deadbeat dad. <laughs> so, which is true. But I don't remember the first time I saw it. I've seen it like a billion and a half times. I listened to the book, and I remember this in the car on the way to Indiana for Brian's bachelor party brian our guest okay and there's a very good audiobook on it uh campbell scott george c scott's son who was in the movie singles yeah narrates it and he's amazing it's one of the best audiobooks ever especially because of the narration is so good okay. i've listened to it more than once and i don't really listen to audiobooks more than once but that one i did you even read I can barely see movies more than once nowadays. Not even and I also, books. and I also watched it very early uh, when I was dating my husband. So you know, one of those early romantic dates. Oh yeah, you know, it's it's fine. We'll just go. Oh, it's, it's it's about a. It's a really it's really a family movie about a father and a mother taking their kid and just getting away from it all, reconnecting violently. <laughs> you know, it's fine. You know, reconnecting with a baseball bat. Yeah, it's cool. Cool. There's actually a parody trailer that you should look up on YouTube. I hope it's yes, still there. I, I, I hope so. Redoes the Shining as a as a charming family rom com. It's hilarious. Yeah, I have what, to watch this. Oh yeah, yeah, it's great. It's got Peter Peter Gabriel Salisbury Hill playing. Yes, it's like yes. It's, okay, it's, you've seen it. <laughs> yes, yes. I if it has probably been up on the Facebook page uh, in pre, in preparation for this episode. Uh, okay, so uh, I would like to start there, Amy. You have read the book, and as I as I mentioned. Stephen King really does not like this film adaptation of his book, which, 
let's be honest, is really saying something because there have been a lot of terrible Stephen King adaptations. Yes. And yet he's, yeah. he's really, he's really he's got a thorn in his side for this one. Uh, how does it differ and which, which is a more satisfying experience? I have had this conversation about a hundred times with my husband. Here's, here's the thing. There's very few times where you really have to separate works of art that are under the same title. This is one of those times. The book is excellent. The movie as an adaptation of the book is a terrible adaptation of the book. Okay. In the book, they one thing that Stephen King does really well is he's very good at creating backstory for his characters to kind of explain where they are in relationship. So it's not just Jack working at the Overlook Hotel. It gets into his history as a teacher, and he once like assaulted one of his students and the drinking problem, and it really gets into all that. So there's all this family tension before they even get to the hotel that they don't really cover in the movie. The in the book, the hotel is much more haunted. There's no labyrinth. There's these like animal uh, topiaries of animals that like come to life and seem really menacing. Mm -hmm. And there's a rogue court, and so it's much more terrifying and supernatural. Rogue court? What kind of yuppie ass hoity toity nonsense is that? I I imagined it to be like croquet because there's a mallet. Okay, sorry. But there's a whole thing with like a wasp nest at one point, and he puts something in the kids' room to kill the wasp nest, and so he thinks the wasps are dead, and then he gives the kid the wasp's nest, but there's still a bunch of wasps in it, and it's one of those. Did he already? Did he know that there were wasps in it, or did is he already kind of starting to lose his mind? Then they also get into the history of the hotel, where there's all this history of murders, and the mafia owned it. So there's a lot more. And I could see that as a writer, I would be pissed. I'd be like, this is, you took everything out. Right. But as an audience member and as a reader, I judge them separately. The book is an unbelievably good book. Terrifying. And Stephen King, I like him. I, he doesn't know how to end his books very well. No, no. He just, the no. ends always just sort of, and they, he does such a, perfect job of building tension and getting the relationships between the characters and slowly building and all that stuff and it's so great and then at the end it's almost like I don't know what to do I don't know what to do and so it all kind of falls apart yeah that sounds like Stephen King so but the movie on its own it's sort of like cabaret the stage version versus cabaret the movie they're a thousand percent different but the movie's like my favorite movie and the show is one of my favorite Broadway shows but you can't Put them together, but, but you can have them both. You can have them both. Uh, now is the time to discuss. Uh, did anyone see the miniseries adaptation that was more akin to what the novel was? I think it was back in late '90s or early 2000s. Anyone? No, but I like the actor. It's, Tim Daly's great actor. Oh yeah, Tim Daly. Oh, Tim, I love Tim Daly. He was also in an adaptation. Uh, Stephen Webber was in that. Storm of Storm of the Century. Storm of the Century, which. My husband loves, and we own on DVD for some reason. Okay, well, we, we, uh, I, I, hmm? I have seen the miniseries, and it, it's awful. <laughs> the, the, the walking topiary animals, as as realized by TV budget CG from the nineties, uh, they're not scary. Not and scary. Steve Weber, also not scary. Nope. Don't don't <laughs> like it at all. 
Okay, well, I I can understand why. That that strikes me as the first thing that Kubrick and uh, his uh, co-writer Diane Johnson would have excised. And be like, we're not we're not making these animals walk. It's just no. Put a maze in there. It's more metaphorical that way. Much better for the audience. So the wife the wife is a better character in the book. The wife is this like beautiful woman, and they have they do actually have a pretty good marriage and stuff like that. Well, that's good because. Because uh, as um, some of you might know, The Shining, uh, while not nominated for any Oscars, it was nominated for some awards. It was nominated for two of the Golden Raspberry Awards, honoring, or rather deriding, the worst in filmmaking over the year. Worst actress for Shelley Duvall and worst director for Stanley Kubrick. And that is saying something when you put Stanley goddamn Kubrick on a list of guys who made a shitty movie because that's except for that one that you mentioned, Brian, it, it usually doesn't happen that way. He's just nominated just for existing pretty much. Uh, the, uh, as yes, as mentioned, the film was not nominated for any Academy Awards at the time. However, I'm sure looking back and what we will do at the end of this show, we normally reserve this for around the, the middle segment is talk about what it should have been nominated for and we will have our discussion on the film and then we will talk about the oscars but right now we are going to briefly touch on the 53rd annual academy awards that year we have discussed that on a previous episode with the winner ordinary people which is a very solidly good movie everybody gives it shit and i understand why because raging bull was nominated that year however Ordinary People is worth your time to watch. Mary Tyler Moore is great. Donald Sutherland is amazing. Timothy Hutton deserves that Academy Award. Most. It uh, really is an unbelievably good movie. It's devastating. Oh, when she leaves at the end. Holy shit. I'm sorry I'm spoiling it. When he tells her, I don't know if I'm in love with you anymore. Oh, it's great. Redford Redford directs the hell out of that. It's his his best work, uh, his best directing work. Really, it's probably some of his best work, period. On either side of the camera, and a tour de force for a handful of great actors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Holy, good, good lord. Uh, but the uh, any just let's open it open up to the floor. Amy, Brian, any thoughts on uh, would how would you redo nineteen eighty if you could, just ever so briefly while we're here? I would take out Tess, directed by Roman Polanski, and I would give that to The Shining. I would also take out Roman Polanski for best director. And put in Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Would you? Are we? Are I would we, have nominated Jack Nicholson, and I don't remember who I would. I, and with all due respect to my favorite actor, I might have taken out Peter O'Toole for the stuntman and put Jack uh, Nicholson in for The Shining. Jack Hughes. Wow. Jack Hughes. Wow. Okay. But I in can't. my world, I would have already given it to him for Lawrence of Arabia and The Lion in Winter. So in my world, he's already won twice. He's already won. All right. the, the, the parallel Amy verse where Peter Tool Peter O'Toole was given his due. Yes. yes. From the beginning. And what a world it would be if only uh, I ruled yeah. the world. Timothy Hutton can win it win his an Academy Award for his first movie. Why can't Peter O'Toole? Not a not a world Amy wants to live in. And I would have put Timothy Hutton in the best actor category. Yeah. But, actor. Uh, but as Brian has He Brian, would have lost, but Yeah. Yeah. Every, Obviously, everybody knows. Like, yeah, De Niro's De Niro's winning it this year. Raging yeah. Bull is a very good movie. It's it's, yeah. it's so good. It's so good. I look forward to uh, to uh, talking about that. 
that later. But okay, we got a we got a little we got a little, little little hint, a little preview of what Amy thinks. We are going to take a short break and we're gonna come back and we will discuss the shining. So grab a seat, stick around. We'll be here a while. <laughs> Little pigs, little pigs, let me come in. Not by the hair on your chinny chin chin. Then I'll huff, and I'll puff, and I'll blow your house in. remember the shining is a story of a man who takes his family to a winter hotel and mayhem, mayhem ensues, ensues. <laughs> lots of lots of mayhem undead well, slowly, and, but it was... yeah axe mayhem <laughs> and, and winter may it's it's just, just mayhem all around um which uh we'll talk about this for our other three films that we are discussing as part of this should have been a contender October for Month of Horror. And my favorite character in the movie, and they're all great characters, I gotta say, is the hotel itself. Uh, props to Kubrick for creating such a, uh, we can call it a labyrinthian, very, just this very memorable looking space in which to throw his characters into uh it's 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 maddening and we will touch upon this in uh over the course of the podcast in uh the excellent documentary room 237 which is about the shining they i think somebody actually does draw a map of the hotel and how none of it makes any sense and how all, all of it lends to this idea of confusion and that you know the rooms that just sort of like doors that go nowhere hallways that just end stairs that just abruptly stop and how it's all like kubrick is using literally the sets that he has to already in in view the air surrounding the film and the characters with uh this sense of isolation eeriness of how everything is not quite right. That's what I love about the movie. It's not quite right. And I was wondering, would you guys ever want to stay at the actual Overlook Hotel? Like, as presented here. You would? I would. One thing that I like that Kubrick is how he shot it, too. Mm -hmm. He does a great job, especially at the beginning when they're walking through the hotel, is just the ceilings are so high. And they're so small. So the hotel, like, 
it's not just menacing. It like swallows you up. Yes. They're so small. And it's, it's all those visuals and the labyrinth is amazing. That was a great touch. Yeah. Take the, that thing. The vastness of the hotel is just one of the ways that Kubrick turns every convention of the horror movie on its end in this film, because so much of horror is about claustrophobia. It's about feeling trapped in a certain space. And, and The Shining has its share of that. But also he uses the, the cold expanses of the huge rooms of this hotel to create tension. There's all this negative space surrounding the characters, um, and they, they, they feel it really intensifies the sense of isolation and loneliness of these people being you know, alone in a space that's designed for hundreds of people at a time. Yeah. And the sound as well. And I don't want to talk about this scene yet, but when Jack Nicholson's in that gigantic room that he's not writing in their little like living space and like a little cozy nook, he's writing in like the big open reception area. And you and the hearing the echo of his typewriter when he's typing on it, and his wife walking in, and you can hear her shoes click, 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 click on the floor, and all of those little things that are just only a master filmmaker would think of. Not to mention the uh, not to mention the the wonderful sound of Danny's big wheel going yep. from carpet onto you know the wood and tile floors. And the uh, way that that's shot real close to the ground. Mm-hmm. Oh, we'll talk about that. <laughs> well. yes. yes, we do. It, um, uh, have uh, it, well the 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 Overlook Hotel is based on the uh, infamous Stanley Hotel that Stephen King during the his coked out seventies once stayed in and had this had this idea that God has had once left this this place. Stephen uh, King did cocaine. I'm yeah, I, I'm. Sh- I am shocked. Uh, the the set the seventies. <laughs> the sets were all. Uh, it's it's a film. It's a, it's it's shot on set, but uh, it, the out the exterior of the of the overlook is the very famous Timberline Lodge, which is in Oregon, and I have been to. And I was wondering, had any of you ever been there? Ever ever seen the place? I have no. And did you go knowing that it was the Dining and all that stuff. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Or were you there, like, oh wow, hey, I stayed there. No, I, I, well, it's it's a stop on the Pacific Crest Trail, and so when I was hiking that, uh, it's it's like it's like a major place to like go and get some goddamn food because you're hungry, hungry at that point. But like even even walking up this mountain, you see, like you come across a bend and you see it, and you're like, oh, you just have the sense of like it's a beautiful looking <laughs> building, but it's not because I've seen The Shining a million times at this point. I'm like, oh god, it's like that's not gonna look this right. Shit, shit. And they have a they, they have a little axe you can hold in in there and like pictures from the, pictures from the movie. I, yeah, I was gonna ask. <laughs> oh yeah. And you they, did it, didn't you? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, my my the little teddy bear I had with me took a took a photo holding the axe and says, "Here's Johnny on it." They 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 live they live it up and uh, I, I I believe. The, I do not think there is an actual room 237 in there. It just doesn't go that high. But they ask for room 137, which I think was the room in the book or whatever or whatever it was because they, they had to change the numbers because they didn't want people staying in 237 because they thought it would be scary. Um, Does the actual interior of the hotel in any way resemble the book? 
No, 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 no. It's a, it's a big, it's a very big, gorgeous ski lodge. It's not, it's not, not fancy, not hoity-toity. It's, but that, but that's another thing because it's so, like the dimensions of the Timberline Lodge seem awfully different than the dimensions of the Overlook on the inside, and so you, oh, you're automatically sent with like, I don't think this is matching up right here. And fi- and finally, the last thing I, I do have to say about the Timberline Lodge is that I think we as Americans need to stop building on Indian graveyards. And I realize that's impossible to do because I think technically we're kind of one giant Indian gra- graveyard, which, and now think about it, does explain so many things, but we really do need to stop purposefully doing doing that because uh and and i did and i did i do love how that's just like it's just a throwaway line that the, I, I had forgotten about it until i watched a couple of scenes from it uh and i'm like oh my god they, they even threw that in yeah just, just <laughs> but because they never they never explain why or what really is going on it's and that's what i think is so masterful about the film yes it's uh but some people say it's uh kubrick is making an apology for the native genocide that the Americans, uh, us white people, inflicted upon the uh, the native populations, uh, for you know, watch room two three seven. We'll we'll go okay. into it, but I think that's why. Pe- hmm? uh, I, I, I was just thinking that given Kubrick's rather black sense of humor, it's just sort of a, an in joke, honestly. But, yeah, uh, I mean it's it's one of those things. Uh, what uh, Poltergeist would would play it up to the nth degree a couple of years later. They made a lot more hay with that notion. Yeah, yes. yeah, definitely. But that's the thing that I think people keep returning to this movie. A lot of films, you there's the beginning, the middle, the end, it, it, it wraps itself up neatly. The Shining never does. The Shining <laughs> is, it does not explain itself in a way that we are used to having things explained. It, it explains itself in the way that Kubrick explains them, which is between the lines. He's he's, he's commenting on which something. Which is not at all. <laughs> which, is, which is not at all. He's commenting on something. What What is that exactly? We don't know. At its On its surface, it's a story about uh, marital dysfunction, but there is a lot more you can take from it, and I think that's why people, especially the people in Room 237, latch onto it is because there is no clear answer. There's no, it's this or it's this. It can be all things now. And that really helps sell the, uh, sell the eeriness and explain why this film has lasted as long as it has in the, in the, in the pop culture. Uh, like one of those things we know, like we all know, here's Johnny. We all know, you know, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. We, we, we know these things, even if we've never seen the movie, we just somehow we know, know that they red are from rum, red rum. Yeah. Red rum. Red we, rum. It's, it's, it's amazing how that has survived from a movie that didn't do that well. When it first came out, it sort of came and went and people are like, Oh, this is a weird film. But even, even now Ebert, who gave it a two star review said it's, like it has aged much better, and it's now it's now it was on his like you know important film list. To, yeah, uh, he changed his tune big time. Yeah, he, I like that he's able to admit it. You gotta respect him for that. Yeah, well, we all do. Yeah, I, I, it's it's an it's important part. Like some, you do have to go back and reevaluate things. And kudos, kudos for him. Kudos for him. And uh, we, we we miss you, 
Thank you very much. Uh, watching this film again with the critical eye that a, uh, of a podcast host, which doesn't make any sense. We're not, <laughs> we're just, you know, that's that's solid work right there. Went to school for this, mind you. Did not go to school for this. Uh, I CA in advanced podcast. Yeah, oh, totally. <laughs> that's why. That's why my tech skills are on point. I tell you. Uh, I just I could really focus on it this time. Like I'd seen it a lot. I know the know the scares, know everything. It's still terrifying. Still all this. What I was struck by was how I never realized that the biggest, most important event in the film, in the movie, actually happened before any of this occurred. Before a single frame of the film had been shot, and that is when Jack dislocated. Danny's shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. I never picked up that this is this is the single most important event in the film that is just to, it just talks about Shelley Duvall, just uh, Wendy just just talks about how you know Jack came home a little a little drunk and he was you know Danny spilled the or no you know Danny came in and Jack 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 had been drinking Danny spilled the spilled the papers and he grabbed Danny and he Pulled just a little too hard and dislocated his, uh, you know, the kid's shoulder, and, and now Jack way, hadn't drinking more. The way that she tells that story, though, man, yeah. is so natural. It's, it's so well acted because she's puffing on that cigarette, and you notice like the ashes on the cigarette. And again, this is yeah. only because I've seen the movie like a hundred times mm -hmm. that I was noticing like facial expressions more than I normally do. You know what I'm saying? Like that stuff. But she's all. <laughs> and she's she's trying to tell this traumatic story while totally being like, oh, it was just this normal thing, puff puff oh. on the cigarette. Yeah, and and I'd like to have word with the people who run the Razzies because I think that that moment alone uh, is a, a fantastic and heartbreaking performance by Shelley Duvall. And she and you know you talk about how in the book Stephen King uh, you know goes into this whole backstory about uh, you know Jack's uh, you know past and violence and. In that one speech of hers, you get so much of that information conveyed in, you know, her very short, sanitized version of the story, but also the just her mannerism, the way she's speaking, her obvious anxiety. My stomach just ties in knots when I see her tell oh, that story. Oh, it's so awful. Yeah. Uh, and how she's trying to present him and the, the the husband in the best possible light. Yeah. And, and, yet, and then they I, cut to the doctor, who's obviously horrified, but... And the doctor's just time that when look. A doctor just would leave that alone. I yeah. wanted to ask about that, actually. Which back in the day, they would have. The, move, the but, book takes place in, like, the 60s or 70s. Yeah. And was that before mandatory reporting? Amy, you might know about this. Better. My guess would probably be yes. That's, you know... Because not only that, but automatic. she's telling it. She's saying it happened when he was little. Right? No, it was uh, a couple. It was a couple five, months before. Oh, I think. Five, months, five months, she says. But then Jack contradicts that and says three years of it. Yeah, it's very good. Time, time, it time is. is an element, and we'll and we'll and we'll talk about that. Well, now definitely. it now it's a hundred, it a thousand percent would have it it would be a mandatory reporting. And the way that the doctor's looking at her, like with that bland, like I'm not here to pass judgments, but you know she is. It is the defining moment of that family's existence in this movie. Also, maybe Steve, you were getting to this. It's that, that matches up with the beginning of Danny Shining and his yes. appearance of Tony. I think. Oh Jesus Christ! That kid 
Mm. <laughs> yeah, the kid's great. But what uh, it it changes the perception of the of how I of how I read the film in that it's not about just like going crazy and Jack being Jack Nicholson, which is like this is kind of the role that we all go. Oh, this is Jack Nicholson. He's he's crazy. And King was like, we should, don't hire Jack Nicholson. He's already he's already too crazy. He can't. Yes, he, he has to start off normal, etc. Like that. But that's it, the problem, though. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. However. If Jack Nicholson was supposed to seem like a quote-unquote normal dad at the beginning, there are scenes from his first interaction with his family that he seems like he cannot stand his family. Mm-hmm. When they're in the car, and, oh, God, it's so great. And he's just like, see, they heard it on the, he heard it on the television. And he's, yeah, he's, that got, the, he's, got, he's got the Nicholson eyes. He's like, mm. And he's already like, oh, you know, the Donner family. And... Just right. like he already seems like I cannot freaking stand these people. Which makes and sense. But, but the problem is is that Shelly Duvall is does annoy me. I just have like an adverse reaction to her and I've seen her in a couple things. Is that she does irritate me. So when he's mean to her, I kinda understand <laughs> why. <laughs> She's really annoying. I'm like He's trying to write, bitch. Like, go away. Find something else to do. In that, like, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but there were times where I definitely was like, I understand what he's talking about. I'm not saying I, you should I kill her, but I understand. I, I think it was absolutely purposeful. Um, you know, while I sympathize greatly with her character, she's also just kind of annoying too. Yes. And I, I, while I absolutely understand where Stephen King comes from and the common criticism of this, where that Jack Nicholson just starts out being Jack, uh, I, I don't know about that because given the history, you know, the guy is not a nice guy. You no. know, there's sure. there's just a certain edge that comes with casting Jack Nicholson that makes you uneasy about you know what's this guy going to do, and you know contrast that with you know. You know, big friendly milk toast like Stephen Weber from the you know, miniseries version from the nineties. And the character uh, is it is dark. He does have a dark history, not just assaulting his son, but he, he got yeah. fired from a job. He was a teacher in Vermont. He got fired which, for assaulting a kid, which it's great throughout the book because it keeps coming up, and his personal version of what happened with the student keeps changing. So but, you see, he's kind of losing his grip on reality. But if you're gonna adapt it to a film and cut out a lot of that backstory, the way you get that done is have Jack Nicholson just say, former school teacher, yep. in the opening interview, in a way that makes you think, what happened? Yeah. And the first words of the book are, officious prick. He's in the job interview, and the first words are, officious prick. <laughs> and he's describing the guy and how much he hates the guy who's interviewing him and all that stuff. So he's a, he's a, and he only got the job because of like some friend of his. Oh, okay. So yeah, but it's, oh, but Jack Nicholson just being like, see, he heard it yeah. on television. But he I made mean, those some opening other comment scenes, in the car too. And I don't remember what it was. Different. Those opening scenes though, I think, I think uh, you know, we're showing him and the, and the family and, and Shelley Duvall and, and Danny, um, you know, they're, they're setting up, uh, our expectation, you know, because the movie is such a slow burn uh, that, you know, right from the beginning to plant the seeds of the problem, you spend the whole, you know, the middle portion of the movie going, okay, when's it all going to hit the fan? Uh, because, like, 
clearly from the opening scenes, this is a bad idea to begin with, to put all these people by themselves together for a winter with no contact with the outside world and only their thoughts to occupy them. It's a a terrible idea. And that's, it's a film about, it's a film about the family, but it's a film about Jack, uh, Jack's guilt and his failure to reconcile the fact that he's a bad guy uh, in a in a healthy manner, and to uh, and to move on past one's demon, he, be, he eventually becomes consumed by his own demon. He's like, well, she thinks I'm going to hurt this kid because he did not. Because when she, when Danny has the the strangle marks on his on his neck, and, and his little and, collar's all ripped. Yeah, and his his collar's all ripped. And Wendy, Wendy goes like, what happened? What happened? She, what does she do? She jumps to well, it must have been. Must have been Jack because hey, he's the only only other one around here, and he's done this before. So yeah, while I say I've, I've forgiven him, I have not forgotten this, and I will still I can still hold that that dagger above his above his head. And, she, and she, it's right after he tells her that he had that dream where he killed his family. Yeah, so like there it's being it's being set up where his his guilt is like is, is taking over, and then he just you know his demons are going you know crawling to the surface and then he eventually goes well and and then he just gets gets a little pushed because you know he really i think deep down he really wanted to embrace it deep down he he thought that i am uh i am capable of this and uh, i maybe maybe i am a monster and so he then he he becomes he becomes that thing whether he whether he really wants to i like that scene where he uh where he wakes wakes from the dream because that's 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 a, definitely a scene where I feel like he does care about this family. You know, he sounded so heartbroken, like it was a dream, and I did this, and I am I am sorry about it. It 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 actually it actually broke my heart a little bit. I was like, oh. and he has that animal like wailing. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's oh it's it's it's. I mean, it's, it's more than crushing. just crying. It's like evil leaving his body. Yeah. And I, I think, and I think it's like the last time he's a, he seems like a good guy. The last time he is uh, a human. He's he's that's last time he's a father and a husband to this uh, to this family. And then and then the ghosts appear, and then it's all downhill from from there. At that point, I, I also like that earlier scene where Danny goes. Uh, to, to get his fire truck or something, and uh, oh my Jack is God, that's sitting on the funny. bed, and you know, you, you, it, it's menacing, but at the at, at the same time, you feel like Jack is almost reaching for some kind of tender moment with his son, but doesn't know how to. But then he asks, "You'd never hurt me or mommy," and then you see that anger switch flip, yeah. and uh, you know, so you know, it's just one of the building blocks that, that goes like throughout the whole second act of the film, where you're waiting with waiting. Planting the seeds ever so deliberately, and, you know, throughout. And so much of that is Jack Nicholson's expressions, because that scene terrifies me. You don't think I'd ever hurt you? I mean, oh my gosh, yeah, like yeah. bone chilling. But mm-hmm. one of my favorite moments in the film, and I always want to know what it says in the script, is when it says Thursday, and it shows Danny and Wendy outside, and then it just shows Jack Nicholson yeah, staring the, the at the camera. Snap, the snap cut, the Kubrick. And his eyes <laughs> are just, his eyes are just all crazy. And I was wondering, like, I wonder what the direction is, like, just stare and look weird, yeah. you know? Well, like, that always... Jack, um, 
There's, Jack. A, there's a big clue there as to what's going on in that scene that comes from the music. I wasn't going to talk about the music. Oh, that, no. We, let's, let's talk about the music. The music is... I mean, we're, we're kind of roaming all over the place, but uh, I... Uh, so, there's a piece of music by Georgi Ligeti, also featured in 2001, yes. uh, with some of the uh, abstract choral uh, ferocity going on in that movie. Um, there's a piece called Lantano uh, that uh, uses repeatedly in scenes that involve shining. You first hear it when Danny's brushing his teeth and has the vision. Um, you hear it next when they're in the pantry with Halloran, and Halloran psychically communicates with Danny. You hear it again in that scene with Jack staring off into space. Okay. So there's a musical musical clue there, which also gets into where does Kubrick stand on the question of are there ghosts? What are they doing? What's the nature of this place? I think you could argue that, that, that the presence of that musical cue indicates that this is where the hotel gets hold of him. This is where the shining begins for him. Okay. Because he's just got that look and, the, and that cue been associated with that before so he's starting to get the shining yes because that's yeah. what Halloran, my husband well, said well halloran said that you know the hotel itself shines so mm -hmm. I, I i feel like that's like starting to hear the hotel yeah you, but doesn't but not like his understand. son not in the same way no yeah no. yeah to to uh to quote a film <laughs> along similar lines it's like danny has a danny and the father have a flashlight but the flashlight that Jack has is is not as good. Is not as good. That's from Story of Echo. Great movie. But uh, yeah, no, that. Oh it, no, it's it's fab. I that is interesting. Uh, where? What is you? What is you? What is all y'all's take on the the Shining itself? And also, Amy, how is the Shining defined in the book? I've read most of or listen to most of the sequel, Dr. Sleep, and they kind of get into it a little bit, but how is it explained in the book and how is it shown in the movie? And is it explained it's, better? It's kind of pretty much the same. That opening scene's pretty similar, that he, they, he can read thoughts and see things before they happen. And they talk about times that Danny's used it in the past. They actually use it that day because when Jack's at the interview, it cuts home and Danny's sitting at home waiting for his dad to come home from the job interview. And he already knows before he gets home that the dad has the job. And that's when you start hearing that music. And he's like in, in his head. And there's a lot of like him talking to Tony back and forth in his head before the dad even comes home from the job interview. And um, <clears throat> that there was another time when they couldn't find something in the house and like he knew where it was just because Tony had shown him where it was. Is, to, is so. Tony is Tony just the like that's that's how we explain the voice in our head, or is does is Tony have a more active and maybe uh, physical role in the book, or is he just? Does Tony tell you to do things? Right. <laughs> Sorry, that makes it. <laughs> um. Yeah, he has a lot of. It, the book really does get more obviously more into the son's head, mm -hmm. and he just he shows him the pictures and stuff and the whole red drum thing. And he doesn't know what it means, and he sees a lot of things, but he doesn't know what they mean, and he figures them out. Okay. So it's not the book is much more, it's much less focused just on Jack Nickel and Jack Torrance. It's really almost like the son is a much bigger part as well. 
Yeah. But that, that, that makes I mean, it's really... Because The Shining does refer to the power that Danny has. It's not the power that yes. Jack has, although Jack gets flickers of it here and there. He's... Um, but, one, but that's that's one of those things that I, I I love though because like everything that that is you know connected with the supernatural in this film has an alternate explanation too, because Tony could be a defense mechanism that you know Danny created uh, after his traumatic experience with his father. Right. All the ghosts are. We never see. Well, actually, at one point we do, towards the end, we do, Wendy, I think, does see the room full of the dead bodies. Mm-hmm. And, but for the most part, we never see the alive ghosts interacting with anybody except Jack. Am, uh, am I misremembering? Oh, well, there's no, the, the Grady right. girls. Oh, yeah, the Grady girls. Okay. Oh, yeah, yes, yes, yes. He has a, he has a shiny. He has a shiny. Never mind. But, I take it back. And those scenes are good. Some yes. of the best scenes. In movie history, I'm going to say that. Those are some of the best scenes in movie history. Yes. Those, Kubrick, and they're shot brilliantly. Oh, yeah. That's, a, that's the thing. Kubrick has this disarming way of centering things on the frame that is, just makes your skin crawl. It could just be the most natural thing. It could just be two girls standing in a hallway who are like cute and they're wearing cute blue outfits. And I swear those girls are still the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. Just because the way they are presented, he rounds a corner and just there they are. And you're like, Ugh. why are you like, okay, I got questions. Why are you here? Because you're not supposed to be. What's going on? And uh, and then you know, Kubrick, he's he's unsettling you. And that's and that's what the film is. The film is the film is scary, but it's more more than scary. It's just very unsettling. Everything about this is made to make you unsettle unsettle. Even the even the framing of them is is. is is perfect, and then the and then of course the the quick Kubrick cuts of the hacked bodies of the dead girls just like brings it over the edge. It's oh, in the elevator with the blood. Come oh. on, like what? That's crazy. I'm not entirely sure what it's what it's you know. I I, I, assume, I assume it's metaphorical because Wendy manages to escape that with not a drop on her, but it's still <laughs> it's still a very powerful image, and the the way it slowly opens comes rushing out. I think there's a music cue there. I can... And it, spla- it comes down, but then you see it splash back yes. up as it gets closer to the camera. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many well uh, well-known moments. The blood, the girls. We obviously have to talk about Jack using his uh, volunteer fireman skills to just destroy that door with an axe. Some of the just I, I, I think, if I recall correctly, "Here's Johnny" is an improv line. Yes, like like that. Okay. And I wonder if kids nowadays would not get that. I mean, we were sort of the end of the Johnny Carson era, and I had to have it explained to me. Right, right. Maybe here. But it also, it it also uh, fits with the theme. You see, you see at least Wendy and Danny watching TV constantly uh, throughout the movie. So you know. Television is their, uh, you know, companion, and you know, yeah. just seeped into their consciousness. Right. Especially the since she's not allowed in that lobby. When he goes off on her in the lobby, man, he has a little bit of a similar tirade in uh, As Good as It Gets, where he also plays a writer, and mm-hmm. the guy knocks on the door as he's about to write this yeah. great thing, and he yells at him. And I don't I was care like, oh, if you hear a like thud, and, and you have to two weeks head. later. 
<laughs> the face because it's the smell that could only be rotting flesh. Even, Even then. then. Don't knock. <laughs> I had never put those scenes together before. I watch a lot of jackasses in movies. People, oh, there you go. Filmmakers there are do, a lot of them. Yeah, filmmakers there do are. tend They're to like uh, re- Still ripping. Still likable. Yeah. Even he, as he's, he's ranting as his wife. But he's, the way that he's doing it, though, is you, it's kind of funny. It's, 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 I mean, it's kind of funny because it's, it's aimed at Shelley Duvall and you want to be like, oh, I'm sorry, Shelley Duvall. But at the same time, you're like, oh, you're just being disappointing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But you are. Because she's like, hey, hon, how's it going? I think I'll make the chicken for dinner. And, you know, most men would be happy with that. But he was just like, hear that? Oh, yeah. He, he, and like snaps himself in the head. Yeah, and oh. that's and that's what and like that that's why you hired Jack Nicholson for that. Like, sure, the the first the you know first third Nicholson like oh, maybe he's not the best. You want him for the last two thirds of this movie. You want you want full on crazy ass Nicholson to be doing uh, to be doing to be doing his doing his thing. Uh, and I I I love Jack Nicholson. I never realized because I was uh, not woke and probably still not woke how deeply misogynistic this movie is. How deeply misogynist? Well, not not this movie. How deeply misogynistic Jack is. Uh, he's it's like it's actually uncomfortable to watch when he's in the bar getting a drink. And That's he, a great shot too. Oh yeah, it's, when it's, it shows him and it's straight on, so it's like he's looking right at you in the audience, and his face just kind of lights up and he starts talking. Yeah, because oh, thank God. The and then there's sick. then there's the reveal that he's talking to the ghost. Oh God, it's such a great scene. I love it. I love it. God, I can't even help it. This movie yeah. makes me <laughs> yeah. crazy. But, it's so oh, yeah, good. No, but, you know, he starts talking about his wife, and he refers to her as the the sperm bank. I'm like, oh yeah. Jesus, and you can just—it's it's <laughs> like, oh, this is our, you can just feel this, like it's like watching it now with uh, all the all the Kavanaugh shenanigans that are still happening. We're recording it early, folks. Uh, you just you go, oh, this is it's 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 painful because it it doesn't it's because the seeds have been laid down, they've been planted ever so firmly. And you know, sparsely across across the movie. So that's he, not what you call your wife. Uh, not all, not all the time, Brian? you know. Brian, you, just I'm, uh, you know, just just no, jokingly, you know. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, uh, but you know, but like he's. I mentioned he, Monica's very strong. Yeah, well, my, my wife, <laughs> my wife would eat my head. She just like she just rip it off and just I don't know, just like use it as but a puppet. But that's why you love them because they're strong, intelligent women. You, yeah. You, you guys and, wouldn't marry. You wouldn't marry a Wendy. No, God, I'm, uh, I'm probably going to. It's probably yeah, but but but, but just, that, that's something true. though that has to be touched on um, hmm. because you could go one of several ways uh, with this. You could say that and some people have posited that uh, there's a commentary about the dark underbelly of the traditional american nuclear family ingrained in this film where you know there's inherent violence in the way that family unit is set up and what expectations are placed on women and how often things like abuse arise in those situations and then just are dealt with 
aren't talked about. Right. And then there's the the other line of criticism uh, that uh, Stanley Kubrick and his approach himself uh, itself may be uh, brought in for accusations of misogyny because Shelley Duvall was treated terribly. Oh, Kubrick on this uh, on this film. Didn't he make uh, her do the scene with the baseball bat, like literally, like a hundred times? times? How much? One hundred and twenty-seven times. Yeah. And there's part of it that I understand, kinda, because uh, you know they said that they were trying to you know create in her the kind of exhaustion and paranoia uh, that uh, that that drives Wendy. Uh, but at the same time, if you look at like behind the scenes stuff, Kubrick is just mean to her. He, yeah. he just snaps at her and cuts her off. Uh, he actually treated Shelley Winters similarly when um, oh. did Lolita. Um, How can anybody be mean to Shelley Winters? I love Shelley Winters. Uh, he he also wanted to get a performance out of her that was that was anxious and edgy, and he got it. Um, but uh, mm-hmm. that kind of uh, that kind of manipulation is um, yeah. I uh, like well, William I, Friedkin in The Exorcist. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm not sure. Not sure how I feel about that, honestly. Uh, although you it know, Duval said she wouldn't Cooper have created that experience for anything. Now, you have to admit that that's kind of a, a devious and pudgy and shitty way to put a performance out of your actor. Right, and and yet we love Stanley Kubrick, you know. So uh, I, you know, I, I, uh, I, I never, um, I, I don't really love anybody so unambiguously as to not see their. Yeah. Films. Oh no. Right. It is interesting. <laughs> Oh, you know, I uh, I had forgotten that he was, and people will call it. You know, when it's a when it's a dude doing it, people call it. You know, he's just being a perfectionist. He's a genius, and Kubrick was, I believe, on you know, he was a qualified genius and high level IQ and whatnot. But you know, there are you can on the spectrum. But you know, you can also just trust that your actors are good enough to do their job. Like they are yeah. highly paid professionals who are capable of emoting quite well. And you don't have to create a sense. You don't have to create the tension. They will, they can, they can dig deep for that. You don't have to shake a bed or, you know, force them to do yes. things over and over and over again. Although I will say, um, and I know that this will sound uh, terrible and sexist, but Shelly Duvall cannot swing a bat. She's, I just, the way she's choked up on it. I'm like, you're I'm like, I'm like, I, 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 I texted Amy when I was watching this. I'm like, She's swinging the bat like a stereotypical girl, and I, I, this is terrible. Please make it stop. And I, I'm sorry, and that's that's wrong because she and does. She's it. holding it straight out in front of her though, and sort of yeah. waving yeah, it, it waving, waving around like I'm, like Jack could just grab that. She does. She does connect. She does. She bashes him over the head, and that that's great. But at the same time, like oh, that that but feels like also... a. You, you could you could argue that 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 perhaps subconsciously she doesn't really want to hurt him, so she's not going. Ham on this. Yeah, yeah. The other other thing we have to remember is as far as misogyny and stuff like that goes, and with, you know, if you watch it from like a feminist, I'm a woman that doesn't watch things from a feminist perspective. I try not to because you look at it and be like, oh, why doesn't she just leave? Why doesn't she just leave? In the book, she does. There's a couple times where she really tries to come up with a plan for how she's going to get out. But again, what are her options? What's she going to do? Pick up her law career again? Mm-hmm. You know, and and just options for women who are abused, especially back then, were very, very limited. 
And also yeah. on a more more practical note, where are you going to go right now? Yep. There's a snowstorm out. The cat's gone. The, yeah. the bobcat. It's like you so again. The oh, radio's broken. Yeah. Every like uh, yeah. all like you are you are isolated. This is this. So is, you can this. see why she would be a little bit more like walking on eggshells and like, hey hon, what do you want for dinner? Like she's just she's just trying to and survive. And that's before he snapped. Yeah. That's before. This is the this is the walking on eggshells of an abused woman that yep. you're seeing even before he you know goes full mad right. in this film. Before well, uh, he tries to correct. Uh, oh yeah. yeah that's that that is the ter- most terrifying line to me just like the way the way grady says i corrected them and he's got this like they were grady. great actors too lloyd and grady yeah Lo- lloyd both, grady, of but... whom, both of whom were the only two actors to appear in three kubrick films what because yep, philip stone who played grady was also in uh, barry Lyndon and clockwork orange and joe turkle uh was also also noteworthy for blade runner Another Blade Runner connection that I'll throw in later. Uh, but uh, Joe Turkle was also in Paths of Glory and The Killing, two fabulous Kubrick films. Wow, back in the day. Jeez. So, the, 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 anyway. the only two sons of bitches crazy enough to work with him more than once. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, what's his name? Peter Sellers. Twice. 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 Okay, yes. Right. Three times. Fine. The hat trick boy. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's uh, watching watching the film now through the the lens of the Me Too. It's so very much about just like the horrors of domesticity, which uh, which a lot of our literally the two other films we have for this three week stretch of movies, Psycho and Rosemary's Baby, are very much about the place of women in society. And how uh, certainly starting from Psycho basically sort of breaks down the uh, the myth of American domesticity and family, mother knows best, etc. And how there is uh, rot and violence inherent to all aspects of life, whether it's and... in uh, whether it's uh, as a as a mother, whether it's in the bathroom, or whether it's just here with your family in a in a place that's supposed to be safe. It is not. It is not indeed. And you want to talk about a director who had problems with women. Hitchcock. Hitchcock. But more on that on the next episode. (laughs) On the next episode. Gentlemen and Psycho. Ho, ho. Yes. Um, Scatman Crothers. Talk about Dick Dick Halloran. Uh, Worked with Nicholson on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and that is actually why he got to play uh, Halloran here. Funny, uh, fun fact: Shelley Duvall was originally uh, scheduled to be cast in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as one of the girls. I forget which passed on this one. Now here she is playing Wendy. And it'd be curious if had she played in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, would she have been cast in The Shining, or would Nicholson have said, "No, I'm not working with her." Her again. Uh, I like Dick as a ex- expository device. He's, uh, you know, he's great. You know, like you listen to Scam and Crothers, like he, he can read anything to you, explain anything to you. It's great. What I really love is the extended uh, side story we have of 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 Halloran watching the, uh, you know, just like getting a sense of everything. He's communicating with Danny via Shining, and how ineffective he is at the end. I love that twist of 
how he gets the hotel, he was there to save the day, and he is immediately chopped down. Yes. I think that is one of the most brilliant things in the movie because there's only one there's one major there's only one major murder and that's and that's and that's Scatman Crothers. And it that that varies from the book though. Yes, I know. He's, yeah, he survives, right? He gets like chopped in the arm. That's armor. a big change. Which, which I, which I, I feel like they did it that works, because, yeah, but it's because, a big change. because you, it's a horror movie. You need to kill somebody before the end, like really. Uh, it's, it's, it's like watching Psycho. I'm gonna, we're gonna bring this up because we're just like watching all these movies, like watching Psycho, getting really invested in Janet Lee, her character, <laughs> and then just like, what? She's dead. But she was, she, was, she was gonna do things. Halloran was gonna do things. He was gonna come rescue them, get out of there. His only job was to was to bring the bobcat up. That was it. That was his, literally his his only point. But that's at that point. Gotta love the baby switch. Oh, but yeah. that's always the scariest part of a horror movie when the person who's supposed to save you is the person that gets killed. Yeah. And all, that's and, always it always throws me off because I'm always like, no, now what? He was the only one who knew. Right. And oh, and the and the way uh, it's shot, because you because like even when you know it's coming, I never quite remember when it's coming. You have Scatman Crothers walking through the big hall. There are those pillars on the side. I'm like, he, Jack jumps out of one of those, and it just goes it goes on to the point where like, all right, it's not going to happen. And it, then it comes back around, and then suddenly there's just this axe. In his chest, you're like, oh, oh, it's it's still it still got me this time. It gets me every time. I'm like, I, why do I never remember when he dies? I know he dies soon, but oh, it's uh, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great death that the movie needs, and just it's how it also I think helps the theme of how powerful Torrance Jack Torrance has become in this. Like, okay, like he's he's like it's just Wendy. And Danny now against the physical manifestation of misogyny, misogyny and domestic violence. Nobody's coming to help. Certainly not the uh, the N word that uh, that uh, Grady Grady calls him. Like oh, and the ghosts are helping him. Oh, but that's another great shot when he's talking to Grady from inside from the the, um, the dry goods thing, and he's got his hands up on the wall, and he's Kubrick shooting him from underneath. Mm-hmm. So just you see his face kind of looking down and talking. Yeah. And you just see the door slowly open. Oh, I'll leave God. it to Kubrick it's to, so to, good. to, it's to, so to good. Uh, just compile a list of, okay, what angles have I got on this? What have I not done yet? <laughs> oh, okay. I and they know. all work. They yeah. all work. Yeah, they do. They do. Uh, on, on the subject of Halloran, I, uh, I'm, I'm interested in investigating something. Because I, I was okay. just going back and reading Pauline Kael's review. She had some legitimate points here and there, though, which is that, uh, you know, it's like it, it feels like kind of a dodge because, uh, you know, you as the audience don't want to see Wendy or Danny being hurt. So they give him the black man to kill. <laughs> uh, just offering him up as a sacrifice. And I, I also, um, from the racial point of view, want to touch on Holleran as an embodiment of a frequent trope in Stephen King. Uh, he employs the quote-unquote magic Negro trope oh, a yes, lot. Yes. Uh, oh, which it, I, I know you discussed that in a previous episode. But driving Miss Daisy? Yeah. Um, uh, it, yes. A, a black character <laughs> is uh, imbued with some special wisdom or supernatural power, which ultimately is to serve the white person's story. Yes. Oh, I think that's that, that, the 
legitimately. All of the movies. And while Scatman Crothers is wonderful uh, and delivers that role uh, very well, it's a, it's a trope Stephen King seems to lean on pretty hard. Right. Was, uh, was Dick black in the book, Amy? I don't remember, but I do remember another case of the Magical Negro in the movie Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. But and in the and... book, Red is not black. No. But, you know. I don't think so. Well, you know. And that's one case maybe where it's the Irish. actually, More but the movie is better than the book in that case, which is also a rare thing. Yeah. But the Green Mile? Come on. The entire movie could just be called yes. the, the Magical yeah. Negro. Literally, Negro on death row. Indeed, um, it's something you can't. I've, I'm curious. I'd be curious to see if that was a deliberate casting choice, or if Nicholson and Scatman Crothers were just buddies. And he said, "Yeah, why doesn't if the if the role of 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 Halloran was called for to be a to be a black man in particular, and when they and if it wasn't when they cast uh, Scatman, they." added in some of the racial uh, ra- racist uh, subtext of the film. Like I said, I really don't remember, and it's bothering me that yeah, I usually remember books I read. Yeah. But it's, at the same time, we do, like, we legitimately do not want to, like, okay, uh, do you want to see the wife and child get murdered, or do you want right. to see this other random character? So, like, it's a fine line. I don't think there's any winning there. Somebody has to die, and sure. in this case, it's, you know, this case, if you took out if you took out the fact that it's Scatman Crothers a black man, it's the, the it's sort of the teacher character. The Obi Wan mm-hmm. has to has to fall has to fall on sure. the sword of the or the axe in this case yeah. of the other father character that Danny now has because it's and his journey. I'm not I'm not saying that that uh, you know the uh, the trope is bad simply for being there. Just mm-hmm. calling calling attention to it and, and yeah. thinking about it in that context. Um, it's true, though. It's very yeah. true. Very, very interesting, and uh, it does. There, there's, there's, uh, there's the the personal guilt in the film that Jack feels towards you know, hurting his hurting his son, and that consumes him. But there's also, you know, there's the undercurrent of uh, entitled. Like we're just gonna, we'll call it the Kavanaugh effect. The entitled white guy who is sort of lashing out against uh, women and minorities for the sake of. Like it's basically just not being uh, being another white guy, and he feels like he should be able to control them and uh, possibly like do whatever he wants to them. And I think that definitely play the overlook preys on those 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 feelings that uh, Brian, I think uh, you and I maybe have had, if not still have, from time to time, just like being in the culture that we are. It is a, it is a it is a indictment of uh, sort of white guy machismo and our, oh, yeah. our, our feelings uh, like like well and truly like completely uh, and that was and, and that was where i was going next like is the presence of halloran in his uh, his use of the film the sacrifice of, of of halloran uh is it is it a problem or is it another piece of commentary about what underlies polite middle-class white culture in america I would probably have to lean towards uh, the latter on that one. You know, we are uh, we are nation, especially especially because of the scene with Brady. I'm reminded of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, as we know, the ghosts are from uh, they're ghosts from a, a different era, and we will definitely touch on that 
as you know towards the end and uh they may not have had uh as enlightened views as we like to think we have well and uh, these days. and jack nicholson also because one thing in the book is he seems to he seems to be close. You see him actually doing like dad stuff with his kid. You know what I like? Okay. He's like, oh, a wasp's nest, cool. I'll kill all the wasps in it, and then I'll show this cool thing. My dad gave one to me. You see a lot more of the, you get a lot of the dad son things. Okay. Um, but in this, like you said, with that jealousy and that awareness that he's not really a great dad, and that. He finds out from this ghost that his kid, who doesn't really communicate with him, that he doesn't understand, is communicating with this total stranger who happens to be black. Right. Understands him more. And I. And, and you don't see you don't see Danny have a father son scene at all, except when he's like in that trance, and Danny comes in and is like, "Oh, hey, I'm just getting my fire truck." That's it. That's the only real scene. That's just the two of them. And yet with Doc, uh, not Doc. Catman Crothers, the boy, oh. yeah, Halloran, who calls him Doc, and they're sitting, and oh, hey, I'll get you some ice cream, and they're doing that father-son stuff, except they're not father and son. Right, but you know, this is a finally, this is a guy who understands Danny, and that's, I think, what a lot of kids want from their from their dads. Like, it certainly sounds like your dad like understands treating him, and he's treating him with a lot of respect, and I think that mm -hmm. that's such a co good commentary on the character that. He's not talking down to him because he's a child, but he's talking to him in a way that Danny will understand because he's yeah. a child. Yeah, he's, he's explaining, he's explaining the shining. Yeah, yeah, and when he's like, you know, and he's like, well, what's in 237? And instead of just being like, oh, he's, you see him and he's like, I need to get him. I, I don't want to scare him slash I also need to tell him not to go in there. You know what I mean? And he's, how do I delicately put that? Like, there's nothing in there, but don't go in. <laughs> yeah. Right. Nothing in Which there. is the worst way to prevent a child from doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now I, now I have to go in there. I don't care if there's yeah, nothing, but you tell me like, not to. I don't really want to terrify him, slash, he really shouldn't go in there, slash, I'm going to try to act like it's no big deal, so I won't pique his curiosity. I mean, there's like 18 different things that he's trying to do there. Yeah, and it's great. And, of course, uh, he... I, what I like, not that we have we have to we have to walk into two in the room two two thirty seven. I like how we don't get Danny's point of view of what happened in the room, because that would be a waste. Of, that'd be a wa literally a waste a waste of time because Jack just goes back there. But I I gotta say that is uh, I I've never felt more like excited and then horrified like the turnaround between those two feelings. Is never more than in the, than in the scene. I was gonna. I was just about to ask you that. If you, got, I'm assuming you both saw this when you were younger. Way too young to see. With hormones, hormones like pumping through your system. So, what was it like being a young teenage hormone filled? You're seeing this woman who's completely naked, who's beautiful, and I'm assuming you had some sort of physical reaction to that. And then all of a sudden, she's like rotting flesh in his hands, and the one that hideous, hideous woman. I'm yeah. assuming that there were some. Yeah, it was it was mixed it was mixed feelings. It was it was Kubrick uh, Kubrick messing with us. Uh, probably. Yeah, definitely had the intended effect. Let's just put it that way. Yes, I did, <laughs> I, I think you know I recall seeing. Because <laughs> at first, you know, just like hey, like I'm just from a young boy, pers younger man perspective. What was that like? Oh, uh, it was like it was like uh, 
being somewhere really hot and then suddenly having a lot of ice water dumped on you. It's like, ha, ah, ha, <laughs> ah, what? Is that, what just see, she gets out of it. I mean, that's a real slow buildup. Yes. It's not a quick. Yeah, it's um, everything. I do. You know what? Uh-huh. I remember. I remember seeing a, a TV version of this that was edited, but they didn't cut that out. They just, they just uh, like fuzzed it over, fuzzed uh-huh. over her, her her bits, and I, like Choice. it was just well, really, because because a it's long and it's also like kind of important to the uh, to, to to the story. And like, oh, this is I feel what is what is going on here. It's somewhat. It's it's actually like even more exciting because I'm like, oh, what? Like, is it? Can I see it? I'm like, oh, I know. (laughs) But that's it's also cross cut with Danny having visions of his fetid corpse rising from the tub too. Oh yeah, and uh, it's it's like it, it, which gets into something that the film does uh, quite extensively, which is playing with the notion of time. Yes. You know, this woman is simultaneously young and beautiful, old, prone, and dead and decaying, and we don't know what it is or how it got there. We don't know when it and is. You're just kissing it. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, attractive woman, you know, gets out like you're gonna do that, and of course, you know, of course, Jack is gonna do that because you know, Jack has, does not respect his his wife, and he's married to Shelley Duvall, which, sorry, but you know, fine. He's a little more attractive than Shelley Duvall as a as a woman. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, but I'm I saying, mean, she's just this golden yeah. guy. But, yeah, but, but you know, I'm, I'm saying I'm saying he's got the alcoholism. He's got the he's got the domestic violence. Let's just go for the hat trick of adultery here. Just, just... And which a, a, another layer. Uh, I mean, there, there's there's so many layers to that scene because it's you know here's another uh, you know temptation outside the norm of the American nuclear family, um, and goes there um you know only to realize you know it turns to ash in his hands figuratively speaking or it turns to an old crone in his hands uh literally speaking and um, that rotting stuff coming undermining off oh. yeah un- just undermining that uh, but also simultaneously raising the question of okay exactly what went on in june 237 mm-hmm. never explained you know is it just as simple as somebody died here and this is the uh you know this is the ghost or you know, is there is there more happening? Right. Here? Is this something it's from his? In this room. Right. Yeah, but like bad, bad stuff. And that is and... that Grady's wife. I don't. Oh, I don't. I don't. I don't think they ever did. They ever explain it? In the, did they ever explain it in the book? Like more. Like I'm. I'm like I'm very curious what what happened in the book in the whatever I the room number was. Don't remember. Okay. I really don't, and it's awful that I don't. What is the point of reading oh, the books if you don't remember? It... And the guy in the bear costume who looks like he's performing oh, terrifying. Oh god. Alatio on some yep. random person's oh, like yep. Oh god. That's so weird. Every time I see it, I'm like, what the fuck? That's the weirdest thing of all movies. It's it's it's, and it's so like awful. Yeah, I've never figured out what the animal sign is. Right. Yeah, that's that's when that's when Shelley's uh then yeah. uh you know Ripped by, arguably ripped by The Shining and seeing everything, which also includes the, admittedly a bit cheesy, you know, room full of skeletons, um, you know, <laughs> but just just sort of uh, you know pouring forth everything that's ever happened in this. Right, all the all the all but the all really, the bad things exist in the both in the past and now. That Halloran doesn't really have to die. It's like yes, it's a horror movie. Somebody has to die, but at the same time, it is such a violent movie. 
even without that. Well, I th- you know what I, I mean. You know, I, the, the violence is uh, is underlined. There's no there's no active here and now violence yeah. except for the except for the the chase at the end. And you know, there's all the, it's like the overlook is literally built on the foundation of violence. It's an Indian graveyard, uh, and you know, with 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 all those implications. So like we see all we get a sense of there's a violent history. And but we need the we need these violent acts to happen now to really set home that this is um, this is important. These are, and these are in fact occurring now. So so it becomes less um, subtext and more right. like text text. Like we the idea we need to kill. is is history repeating itself? Where exactly are we in history? <laughs> yes. And does this happen every winter? Yeah, because you know they do mention that there are there are like. It, they had to have had other people do it, right? Besides, besides Brady yeah, besides and Jack Brady and Jack. So, like, why didn't yeah. they get that guy back? Yeah. And I know well, maybe that not exactly we, that, but you know, we right. wouldn't have we wouldn't have the whole story. But at the same time, part of me was like, why did they just get the guy they had last year? Yeah, he probably didn't. He probably wanted none of that of that shit. Which uh, does bring us to the end. Jack is chasing Danny through the hedge maze. Uh, he's brilliant. Danny's outsmarting he's him. Limping. Yeah, he's, he's limping. Danny's outsmarting him by like walking back on his on his on his footprints. He I never it's oh, it's one of the he's ho- Jack is hollering like a like a like a wolf like a madman. He's like ah, oh, he's just he's he's like injured. He's dying. He's freezing. Uh, it's great. It, you know, it's the maze is metaphorical, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Danny and Wendy escape on the Bobcat, so lovingly provided by the now dead Scatman Crothers. And then we smash cut to Jack Nicholson, frozen, dead. With crazy, that crazy With look the on crazy his crazy look on his face. And finally, we uh, music comes up. We're back in the hotel. We slowly push in on the photo of the July 4th ball from 1921. Seven. Seven, One. something like that. Nineteen twenty-one. Oh, I, I, I could have been misreading. Yeah, it's, it's I could some, somewhere, somewhere in the somewhere in the twenties, uh, around there. And who is there, but Jack Nicholson, smiling, alive in a tux, uh, doing doing his thing. What? What's what's going on there? Because what is what is the movie saying? Like just happened. What's 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 happening? Because I like I am legit. This is a legit question. I'm like still a little confused. Are we saying like so? Jack is a ghost. Did any of this happen? What like is he just revisiting this? What's 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 going on? Anybody? Anybody? Please. I have a I have a couple theories. I think first of all, it might have started as just a Stanley Kubrick joke. Okay, all right. That's 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 fair. He's, that's one thing. So there's no could... there's no such photograph in the book. You're our I don't, resource for the book. I don't okay. think so. Okay. But I think, and the whole hotel like burns down or something like that at the end of the book. Yeah, yeah. But I think they did that in the miniseries. I also think it's a little to make us question. I don't think I think it's one of those Stanley Kubrick things where he presents you something and then makes you figure it out without spelling it out, but. How they keep saying like you you've always been the caretaker you've always been here that in some ways like spiritually he is connected to the hotel mm-hmm. whether yeah. it's reincarnation or something like that but he'll always come back 
to the Overlook because like they own him. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, there's there's a couple of things. Um, first of all, again, the music holds a clue. Um, it's a it's a little song called Midnight, the Stars, and You, and there's there's a lot of the little ironic bits in it if you listen to it as you as you watch. But one of the um, one of the last lines is, "I'll be remembering you, whatever else I do." And um, the idea of is Jack remembering a past existence in which he was there, or is this the hotel's way of remembering him by incorporating him into the specters that inhabit the hotel? Mm. Um, you know, was he in that photograph before he died? Who knows? Because uh, we don't see it, although we see plenty of shots of that wall full of photographs right. you know, foreshadowing throughout the whole movie. But it, it also is perhaps the final uh, stroke of the complete dissociation from linear time that happens throughout the film. You know, with those cards that you know, start out saying like the interview and a month later, and then finally you're just like, Thursday. Thursday. Right. Uh, yeah. That's my favorite um, one with that crazy look. God, it don't know. Me. You know, it, a first of all, it's you know just symptomatic of the cabin fever, where it doesn't matter what day it is; it's every day mm -hmm. is the same. You're snowed in, but also this this you know seeping um, dissociation. Uh, did have you noticed that neither Grady nor the girls seem to come from 1970? Like, yeah. it's said that he killed his daughters in 1970. Those party dresses that those girls are wearing look much older, like 40s, 50s. Uh, and, uh, you know, Grady himself is in the tux, so it's impossible to tell exactly, you know, where he comes yeah. from. And it then feels Grady's like he's wearing a uniform, but little girls in that era, mothers did dress their kids in little frilly dresses, because I definitely had dresses that had the, hat, you know, like the little puff sleeves and the smocking and the little Peter Pan collars. and Okay, Stuff like that. Yeah, but but Kubrick is Kubrick is has an eye and but I don't know. eye for detail for everything. Like the costumes are very much of the time that they are they are in, like in Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon's, all that. You you get a sense of what like this this matches up with mm. the time period we're in. The entire Overlook itself has this weird quality of not really feeling like anywhere in time and i, I the, exactly. the, and, and now, now that you mentioned it, the girls do look they look like they could like they look like they were not from now but definitely and probably definitely from before as to when that before was mm -hmm. uh it was i think it was perhaps as we say both then and every and every moment up until now is essentially the the spectrum of time that they inhabit one way or the other and, uh, you know, then further complicated by the fact that Grady says, you've always been the caretaker. Yeah. What does that mean? Does time have any meaning in this place? I don't think it actually does. Yeah. And doesn't Grady say that he's not the caretaker or something you are. like that? I'm not the caretaker. Yeah. 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 You are. You are. And his, his accent. I, I, there's, a, there's a theory that there's, um, uh, that, like, the, there, there is the Grady who is the, the waiter and there's the grady who is the caretaker and they are they are the same person who have just sort of been manifested as entities separately along uh, along the timelines and uh that jack is sort of jack is sort of the same way there's there, there's a jack who's who is fine and there's a jack who comes back to the uh uh to to the hotel yeah. and who who, mur who murders it who, who becomes who becomes part of it 
Um, or is it the case that once you become one of the ghosts there, your identity is fluid and you know you could become whatever, whenever, however. Right. You know, it's, 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 like, there's like, some loss of grip on who you are. Right. Whoever the director is, you know, just says, "You're okay. We're an ensemble theater. You're going to play. You're you're <laughs> gonna you're gonna play the waiter this time, Jack it's, Nicholson. It's you'll, be the, you'll be the you'll be the yeah." And they're just they're just doomed to sort of endlessly repeat this because we never get a sense of like whose perspective is this really that we're seeing. We don't. There's no reliable narrator to any of this that sometimes it's Shelley Duvall's it's sometimes it's Jack Nicholson's other times it's uh, Danny Lloyd's there's Danny uh, it, it's very it's infuriating it's infuriating how you, you can't you can't get you can't pin down anything and that's why we love talking about this movie is that like that's like happened. like like did it happen in 1980 yes did it happen in 1920 sure what who whatever Whatever, yeah, but there's the TV. Like, yeah, but, you know, things can, like, with time, things can just get out of whack and become their own, become their own thing. Time can exist however it wants to exist because time is, who the fuck knows what time is? And I think that's... Oh, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to change the subject a little bit because I just, I need to get your, get your opinions on this. Two things. One, real quick, the little boy gave a great performance. Yes. Yeah, I did. When he comes up in the mother's, resting or in bed or whatever and the little boy's like danny's not here mrs torrance that is probably for me one of the most terrifying things especially now that i have a sweet little boy <laughs> yeah. like if william came up to me and was like william's not here anymore and was talking to me through his finger i would probably like push him out of the house and so his performance was really great when you first saw the movie and i'm assuming you did have read the book what was your reaction when you found out that red drum meant murder? Were you surprised by that, or were you like, "Oh my gosh, that's what that means"? Uh, you know yeah, I, 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 I think it's one of those things where I knew, like, it's just been a part of life. Okay. As is, so I'm like, oh yeah, like red, red drum murder. The movie. So yeah, I, I, there, there was no surprise there. Right? Okay. I mean, it's it's done very well uh, on it. Like, why? I was wondering, like, why is he drawing the R backward. That's weird. Like, oh, yeah, and right. he, he, purpose, he purposely says it was a little weird too, and I'm sure he was directed to do that to, to kind of throw the audience further. Because he really says he doesn't say red. It's very like red drum. Yeah, red drum. Red drum. Oh god, that's terrifying. And he and he is like, I, I mean, he's super cute. I like uh, little '80s haircut. I'm like. I want to give you a hug. And his little collared shirts with his little thick sweaters. A cute little Apollo yeah. 11 shirt saying, you know, basically saying, I fake the moon landing. That's great. <laughs> That's another fun theory about this movie, that it's an apology for Kubrick faking the moon landing, uh, which is the, the that vast conspiracy theory. And this is his way of, like, saying, I did it, but, you know, I can't talk about it because... Government. Podcasters, uh, podcast listeners, you can't, you can't see this, but my face is literally in my palm. Yeah, it's, it's uh, we, but but the best part about conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory is that you never 
have to actually answer anything because everything's just another part of the conspiracy. It's, it's, it's I watched it's, I watched that documentary room. 237 and I consider myself a movie buff and I consider myself a little bit of a nerd and I obsess about movies and I think and I make my theories I watched that documentary and I'm like wow these people make me look like I don't really care that much about like the guy who took the time to draw out the whole Overlook Hotel I was like that's like a commitment and like watching the movie back playing backwards over the movie playing forwards I'm like like, how do you even do that? What? <laughs> Crazy. Like, yeah. There are movies that I am obsessed with, but I have not done that much. Yeah. I um, love Cabaret. I didn't sketch out the Kit Kat Club and all you that. You didn't stuff. play it backwards? No. You should oh. totally play it backwards. It'd be like, uh, you haven't lived until you've seen Cabaret backwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everything ends up fine at the end. Woo! Right. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, right you know, some movies stay with you forever and ever and ever. Uh, all right. We have. I'm sure we can discuss uh, a, a great many more things, and I would. Uh, but we the the point of this show is uh, it should have been a contender. So what should The Shining have been nominated for? Though Brian, I see like you want to make a point real bad. Oh no, no, I'm, 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 I've been waiting. Okay, all right. What should The Shining have I... been nominated for, Brian? Brian. Okay, first and foremost, cinematography. I have no idea. Why this didn't get nominated? And yes, it was against a couple of powerhouses like uh, you know, Raging Bull and Elephant Man, which also didn't win, oddly. Uh, <laughs> but just the advances of the use of the Steadicam uh, in this is worth oh, the nomination yeah. alone. This was the first feature in which the Steadicam was extensively used. It had been used for a couple of things like Rocky and Halloween. Both uh, had a couple of uh, Steadicam shots. But he actually hired the inventor of the Steadicam, Garrett Brown, who said he learned about how to use his own invention by shooting The Shining. Um, <laughs> you know, and you know, Kubrick took the technology and pushed it to its absolute limit. Nobody had ever seen anything quite like that before, which is yeah. part of why it's so unsettling as you just sort of eerily glide along yeah. through this hotel and behind yeah. characters. Um, yeah, I, 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 I remember the, it was the shot. I think it was in the hotel. You, you fly down, you see, you're flying down like, oh, there's Jack, there's Jack. And then it, like, it, like wait now we're following jack too wait what is happening like that's this is not how cameras work what it, it yeah. blows my mind how <laughs> uh how like impressive the the cinematography yeah. is it's, and it's, and like putting the cameraman in a wheelchair so we could get the rig down low enough to follow at big wheel level through the hotel yeah you know, it's just i mean it's crazy kubrick, 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 kubrick was always pushing the envelope of, of film technology why, even though this was not especially critically well received at the time, you couldn't recognize the technical yeah. mastery involved. God damn! If if Suicide Squad can win an Academy Award, if the Transformers films can be nominated for an Academy Award, The Shining could be nominated for an Academy Award. God damn it! Yep. And uh, I'll just throw out there: I'll let the, you know, I'll, I'll let the listeners you know, take some rest. Uh, art direction for sure. Um, and uh, you know, I I would probably. Um, know if Amy swapped out Roman Polanski, I'd probably swap out Richard Rush for The Stuntman, which is a great movie, but the direction isn't particularly remarkable uh, for uh, Best Director for Family Business. Best what Picture? About... I'm not sure it's a contender, given the field that year. Strong field. Excuse me! Oh, fight! Have you seen, have you seen the movie, Tess? No, I, I have not. 
that's the only one of this of that year that I, I haven't the slightest idea of. You know, I, I think it's an adaptation of Thomas Hardy. That's it all is. I know. It is. Uh, yes, uh, Tess of so the I'm totally, totally unfamiliar with Tess, so I don't know. Maybe it deserves a nomination over that. Certainly wouldn't have deserved to win over, uh, you know, Raging Bull. But he also had Coal Miner's Daughter that year, which is a fantastic film. Uh, Never seen it. What? That's, oh, I've wow. seen parts okay. of it. I thought it was good. What a fantastic film! Wow. Okay. So it's, you think? It's solid work. There. I surprise. I surprise no. myself sometimes. I should right. like that movie. I thought it was boring, so I never made it through the whole thing. Give, give it another shot. Give it a chance. Give it another shot. Um, but, uh, well, yeah, you know what? I could, okay, fine. You've twisted my arm. Throw out Tess. Put in Shining <laughs> as a nomination. For best we are now. I still don't think it would deserve it over Raging Bull, but. We could now be friends for another 20 years. Yay. <laughs> Never see each other in person. What about film editing? And side note, did Thelma Shoemaker win that year for Raging Bull? Because if she didn't, I'm going to throw the computer across the room. I'm just letting Check it. She had to have been nominated, and she had to have won for Raging Bull. Yes, yes. Thelma Schumacher did win for Raging Bull. Yes. So something was right with the world. But you've got a point. could come up with that. What about performances, Brian? Do you think Jack Nicholson deserved a nomination or Duvall? Neither of them, but I would make the case that Danny Lloyd deserves some some love in best supporting. I because was going to say the same. One of, one yes. of the most naturalistic child performances I have ever ever seen. Especially now that I have a child of my own. Looking at him, yes, I see some of my daughter in him. Not in you know talking to and, her finger. And, you know. and how did Kubrick get such a performance from such a? How old is he? Or how old he, was he? He was about six when they were filming it, I think. To get a kid to show that kind of terror on his face, I don't know yeah. what Kubrick was doing to the kid to get those reactions. That's all I kept thinking about is what I would have to do to William to get him to get those reactions. Oddly, in interviews, he said that, that Kubrick was very gentle with him and, and sort of shielded him from everything that was going on. And yeah. he didn't even know it was a horror movie until oh, after it was released. Oh, yeah. oh that's, that's funny. really cute. That's adorable. That's really cute. Um, I agree with you. On those, I would give Nicholson a nomination for Best Actor. I agree with Supporting Actor for The Sun. However, I don't think either one of those would have won. I still would have gone for Tim. I still would have gone for Timothy Hutton for yeah. Ordinary People. And I still, I'm not going to be the asshole who takes away the uh, Oscar from Robert De Niro, who at that point hadn't. He'd only won Best Supporting Actor. No, I mean, I mean, so, that, that's that's one of those just displays of all-in acrobatic, but uh, I will, insanely committed acting from De Niro. You can't. But I will say this: I personally, Raging Bull is not on the Amy Thomas and Top 100. I respect it. I recognize that it's one of the greatest movies ever made. I don't. In, I cannot sit through that movie though. I always find something else to do and like get up and do something else. I, there's something about it that just does not click with me that I can't, I don't like the movie, but I really respect it. Well, you know what I'm saying? I would, I would say the, the sight, shining. The I watch sight every single sound, year. Uh, you know, best films of all time would disagree with you because I believe that it's, it is the number one film on the sight and sound list. But uh, the shining 
And I would put it, I would put it, it could be, it could be the best movie ever made. I don't enjoy watching it. I watch the, I watch The Shining at least once a year. That's fine. And Ordinary People, I think, is also on Amy Thomas and Poppelheim because I love that movie. I think it's amazing. Hey, Citizen Citizen Kane is arguably one of the greatest movies of all time. I've watched Not, the, I've watched the movie Supernova, I don't know, way more times than I've seen Citizen Kane, and I, I I don't care that the ratio is so skewed heavily in favor of a terrible science fiction movie. I love it so much. Anyways, um, any uh, any nominations for writing adaptation? No, you wouldn't, you wouldn't give there. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I you know. I mean, with the, set, with the exception of a few lines, Kubrick's, Kubrick's not a director who's ever been particularly interested in writing. No. Well, there, I mean, I mean, writing, writing is so much more than, than than the dialogue, of course. And like, you know, this oh, is I'm, I'm not I, I can't I can't we can't hold this up against say the Lion and Winter, which is one of the most well written movies of all of all time with the greatest dialogue. But just like you know, it's it's also about like how you how you pace, how you plot. What 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 you're saying when you're not saying anything, and there there is a lot to be uh, a lot said here. Certainly, looking back on it now, you go, this is actually a very this movie has things to say about it, and I, you could make the you could make the case like loose case for best um, best adapted screenplay. I like I think Ordinary People yeah. would probably still win that. Uh, maybe take out Breaker Moran. But they've got but, a lot of iconic lines. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Even come play with us. Right, but I mean that's just yeah, commercials. Yeah, but, but 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 the most iconic line, of course, as with like so many things, the most iconic line of the movie is one that they you know, just they just winged and improv at the time, and that's why that's why the movies. And as far as the structure and the storytelling, you know, without seeing the screenplay, I really don't know how much of it came from there versus the directing and editing. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I imagine that. Though I do imagine the screenplay was. Basically, a novel at that point. If you would like detail, it's a Cooper screen. It's, so, yeah. so it's, it's, it's absurd. So, uh, so um, Brian, you say maybe not best picture. Maybe should not should not have been a contender. Although maybe like number six or in the top ten of film. Well, you know, like I said, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't speak about Tess with any uh, with any authority whatsoever since I've never seen it. Oh please, who needs authority here? We're a podcast. You can just go. You just whatever. All right, fine. But, but just swap out Tess. Okay, I, I, I think that's what we all agree upon. Mostly because yeah. this is this is uh, Tess is also a Roman Polanski post uh, uh, exile, and we're like, oh, it's a little bit. Yeah. I think I think I think nowadays we'd be like, yeah, we're just gonna and the, gonna wipe that the girl in it was a model that I think he dated when she was like fifteen years old. Oh, that's. Funny. I thought it was Natasha Kinski. I thought it didn't. He have an affair with her at some point. Oh, it, well, it, it's possible. I don't know. I haven't spent a great deal of time investigating the biography of Roman Polanski. Watch the thing on HBO. Roman Polanski, Wanted and Desired. It talks about the whole case. It talks about all of his life and all that stuff. It's very, very good. Yeah, all right. Fine. I would um I would also uh, do that. I would also I would also uh, toss in best sound for this. Uh, as well. I mean, oh my god, you're right. Yeah, it would uh, like Empire Strikes Back came out that year, and that's a great, uh, <laughs> as great sound to it. And like, it, that's a very technical, showy sci-fi movie, and one of my favorite movies of all time. But the the sound here, and certainly, it's not not just the sound; it's also the lack of sound. Yeah, it does it because it's not a movie that like overpowers you. It's like it's really subdued. I think is, is great. 
for this. And I think this was it. before they had a best sound editing category. Right, right. Yeah, I this was, it was just certainly best sound. come up for that in terms of when do you use versus not use. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so yeah, we seems like we're all over the place. Could be could be nominated for a great number of things. I mean, it's, which is it's a Kubrick film, so it's technically excellent. So you can, am I the only one who thinks Nichols? Am I the only one that thinks Nicholson deserved an actor nod? Yeah. Wow, I'm, I'm surprised I, by that. He's it, amazing. Oh, I mean, yeah, he's amazing, but... I, Squarely in his comfort zone, though. Yeah. And also, also, I'm looking at De Niro, Duvall, John Hurt, Jack Lemmon, Peter mm -hmm. O'Toole, and I go, ah, God. Mm. No, Nichols, I Nicholson won a few years before, nominated. He'd he win again in a couple I years. Would keep, I would keep O'Toole. I'd get rid of uh, Jack Lemmon. Oh, uh, yeah, that 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 one does. I mean, tribute. Is there a scene tribute? I haven't. I've it's have. not, I've never not been, been remembered by film history. And it was Robert Duvall for what movie? Great Santini. Great Santini. Oh yeah, keep him. Yeah, no, like I said, take out Jack Lemmon. Jack Lemmon. There's like 15 other movies that he deservedly would have won an Oscar for, but this. Yeah, but at the same time, it's like at the same time we are going. You know, you know who needs another Academy Award nomination? Jack Nicholson. Like, no, he, he's got three. He's got three but wins. This is one of the. He has like ten super iconic parts. This is one of the ten. Yes. Yes. And Absolutely. yes, and should, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel, I don't feel. He's a large percentage of why this movie is a legend and so iconic. Definitely. Agreed. Not the though. only reason, but he's come on. Yeah, he's come on. Well, this has been fun, folks. I think overall we're on the we're, we're on the uh, we're we're gonna say that yeah, Shining. Looking back now, should have been nominated for Best Picture. I understand why it wasn't at the time. Not critically critically well received. People didn't. Uh, there wasn't an awareness of all the there's things that a, were going on at the time. Always a lag for. Yeah, and it takes people a few years, and they're like, "Oh yeah, that was actually great." Yeah, like Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I love. So Eyes people did not like it to be I'm like, "Why Everybody did you like it to be good?" Oh god. Well, I'm I'm personally not convinced it was ever actually nominated. That's a story for the day. Well, okay. Well, maybe maybe we can talk about that later when we just have an all an all Kubrick podcast. Uh, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Brian, thank you so much for coming back on and talking about Kubrick and The Shining. It's always great having you here. When we discuss Barry Lyndon, maybe we'll have you back on. Or Full Metal Jacket or anything Strange else. Love. Or Dr. Strangelove. Just, just count me in for anything Kubrick. All right. You'll be all, I'll you'll, even talk about Fear and Design. I've never seen that one, but now I feel like I have to because you tell me not to see it. Like, oh. his, his, very, his very first film tried to suppress all copies of it while he was live and there's a reason okay oh that sounds like that sounds like fun fun it sounds fun. like what steve's doing the best <laughs> <laughs> uh brian if folks wanted to get in touch with you about your kubrickian thoughts where could they find you if they that's possible ah well um i've uh, you, you, you cornered me with this one last time uh i don't have a public facebook profile and i'm not on twitter okay um, Man of mystery. Uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll tell you what. Uh, you know, I'll I'll provide uh, some some way you can contact me and uh, whatever supplemental information you have with the link here. Okay. Well, at this at the at the very least, you can write us an email at oscarwatchpodcast at gmail.com. 
telling us why you love Bryant or why you dislike Bryant, and we will pass along the message to him. How about that? Okay. You can also find us on social media at Oscar Watch Pot. And folks, we're getting your listener requests in. Thank you so much for our entire month of December. Our gift to you. Keep sending them in. Keep telling us in detail why you love this movie or hate this movie and why we should talk about a movie that won Best Picture, a movie that was nominated for Best Picture, or a film that you really feel like should have been nominated for Best Picture. And we, we will address those. We haven't heard from Brian yet. By oh, the way, no, we haven't heard from Brian is. yet. Oh, um, and hence, maybe a film that you're like, why haven't you talked about this one yet, Brian? I'll, I'll post it to you. Okay, then. That sounds great. And next week, we continue our Should Have Been a Contender series on film, on horror films that were not nominated for Best Picture with a look at uh, perhaps one of the most definitive, the mother of all slashers, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, where I, where I swear we will not just talk about the shower, the shower scene for an hour and a half. We will actually address the rest of the movie because, folks, there is a rest of the movie there. And it's actually and quite it's good. good. It really is. I'll <laughs> really, be tuning in really well done Brian will be tuning in that's one hope you do the same and until next time we'll see you on the red carpet